You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I sometimes wonder if the Apostle Peter and the other apostles faced as much slanderous attack and vile accusations as the Apostle Paul did. I'm tempted to believe that, uh, that they did, that they were the recipients of just as much hostility and just as much slander and just as much vitriol as Paul was. What Paul went through is almost infamous to us, isn't it? We're familiar with all of the slanderous accusations that floated against the Apostle Paul and against his gospel. And there are whole books of the New Testament, like 2 Corinthians, that were written to address some of the things that were said about him and about his character and about his integrity and about his his ministry and his person. And we don't have the type of record for Peter and for Matthew and, and for James and for the other apostles like we have for Paul. We get to the end of the book of Acts and we see these horrible things that were said about Paul and how he was viciously attacked. And I kind of wonder, well, where was Peter? What was he going through? We can see what Paul was going through. What was, what was Peter enduring at the same time? Certainly all of the Christians in the early years faced slanderous accusations and vicious attack. Paul seems to state in 2 Corinthians, or 1 Corinthians chapter 4, that the other apostles had the same thing said about them. Listen to what Paul says. He's writing to the church of Corinth, and he's kind of reproving them because they had it at ease. They were comfortable, and as apostles, the apostles suffered all of the things that went with being a Christian, and the Corinthians really didn't suffer for their faith, really weren't persecuted. The Corinthian church was so much like the world, so much like the culture, that you couldn't tell a Corinthian Christian from a Corinthian pagan. And so Paul writes to them and he talks about their comfort and about his own suffering. And listen to what he says. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might also reign with you. For I think that God has exhibited us us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. And to this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and are roughly treated and are homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world and the drag of all things even until now. That was the life of the apostle. You want to be an apostle? It meant suffering, persecution, slander, reviling, hatred. People hated you. You had nothing. That was being an apostle. You might even say that was the marks of being an apostle. Peter dealt with or had to endure the criticisms and the slander and the hatred and the vitriol of people in his day, he learned a good lesson from the Lord Jesus because in 1 Peter chapter 2 he says that Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And so Peter says he is an example for you to follow in the same way. When people slander you, you don't slander back. When they revile you, you don't revile back. When they threaten you, you don't threaten back. When they call you names, you don't call names back. You just simply entrust yourself to Him who judges righteously. 
First Peter chapter 3, so you keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. First Peter chapter 4, if you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests upon you. So that's to be your attitude. Now even though those words were written long after Acts chapter 24, several years after Acts chapter 24, the Apostle Paul modeled what the Apostle Peter wrote should be our model. And you'll need to have your Bibles open to the book of Acts chapter 24 and be able to follow along as we look at this text. We're looking at the Apostle Paul standing before the governor, Felix, and he is on trial because accusations have been raised against him. And in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 24, they raised three accusations against Paul. They said he was guilty of sedition, that he was stirring up all the Jews everywhere, that he was guilty of sectarianism because he was a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and that he was guilty of sacrilege because he even tried to desecrate the temple. Sedition, sectarianism, and sacrilege. Those are the three accusations that were raised against Paul. Now, having been given the opportunity to present his defense, the prosecution has rested. They're done presenting their accusations. Paul begins to give his defense. And last week, we looked at his defense against the first accusation, that of sedition. They said he is stirring up all of the Jews everywhere. He goes about from city to city preaching, and everywhere he goes, there is this mob that follows him, and he is just causing dissension and sedition and unrest and civil disorder amongst all of the Jews everywhere. And so Paul gave his answer to that. And what we noted last week was it's not really so much what Paul says as the manner in which he says it. Do you remember what was absent from the Apostle Paul's defense? We didn't have any flattery, did we? He didn't start off with all of the nice things against Felix. He just says, you yourself have been a judge to this nation for many years. And so I'm cheerful to make my defense before you. And then he just gives his facts. We also noted that there was no uh, there was no interruption. The Apostle Paul was courteous. He wasn't rude before Felix. He waited his turn, waited for the prosecution to give all of their evidence, and he sat quietly and waited for his turn to present his defense. And then, he, then when Felix nodded to him, the Apostle Paul gave his defense and just stated out the facts. The other thing that you'll never see in this, and I didn't mention this last week, but this is a good point to bring this up. Another thing you will not see the Apostle Paul do, you will not see him attack back. He's been reviled, and you're not going to see him revile in return. He's not going to raise any of his own accusations against the prosecution. They have called him a pest. He's not going to call them names back. He is not going to impugn their motives. He is not going to criticize their integrity. He is not going to say anything about them that might slander them or revile them or make them look small. All he is going to do is present his defense. And friends, that is significant because when we are reviled and when we are slandered and when we are called names, what is the most natural thing for us to do? What is it? We want to call names back. And think of what the Apostle Paul could have said. He could have mentioned how... Ananias, who was there in the courtroom accusing him, he could have mentioned how Ananias, just a, almost a week prior, had ordered him to be beat in the mouth when Paul started out by saying, I've lived with a clear conscience before God up until this day. And the member Ananias said, strike him. And they nailed the Apostle Paul right there in the Sanhedrin. Paul could have mentioned that. And he could have showed how wicked and corrupt Ananias was and how he had no chance of getting a fair hearing. Paul doesn't mention that. He doesn't call Ananias a liar, which he certainly was. I can call him a liar. He was a liar. He didn't talk about his corruption. He didn't impugn his motives. didn't slander his character. Didn't, didn't question his integrity. None of that. He doesn't attack back. He just gives his defense. And in answering the charge of sedition, what did he say? 
He said, first of all, I didn't have time to create sedition. You yourself know that it was only 12 days ago that I went up to Jerusalem to worship. He didn't have time to create, to, to, to gather a group or to create a sedition. Second of all, Paul says, I didn't have the intention to create sedition. I went up there to worship, not to teach, to preach, to minister, or do any of those things. I went up to Jerusalem 12 days ago to worship. That's why I went. I didn't have the time to create sedition. I didn't have intention to create sedition. Third thing he says, they, they couldn't produce proof of sedition. Neither in the temple, nor in the streets in the, in the synagogue, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anybody. I was silent. Didn't say a thing. Didn't give the enemy any fodder. And Paul says in verse 13, nor can they prove the charges against the, that they bring now against me. Well, that was his answer against the charge of sedition. Now in verses 14 through 16, the Apostle Paul answers the charge of sectarianism. They have accused him of being a sectarianist. What is that? As somebody who is the leader of a sect, a group, a clique, a, a sort of an offshoot of people. He is the ringleader, they said, of the sect of the Nazarenes. That was up in verse 5 and in verse 6. Those are his accusations. He is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now remember, Nazarenes were not looked upon as good because the proverb said, is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? And so you had this blasphemer, deceiver who came out of Nazareth, Jesus by name, and anybody who follows him must be just as corrupt as he was. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. So they call him the sect of the Nazarenes. Now understand what's behind the accusation. What's behind the accusation is the attempt to show that the Apostle Paul was leading a group of people who were an illegal religion and that he was a false teacher. You see, in their view, Paul was an apostate. Why was he an apostate? Because he had abandoned the law as a means of righteousness. He said righteousness and justification don't come through the law. And they said, well, you've abandoned the law. And he didn't require converts to be circumcised, so he must be preaching against Moses, who gave us the ordinance of circumcision in the law. And he's worse than that. He fraternizes with those unclean Gentiles. Every city that he goes to, he fraternizes with Gentiles, and he eats unclean meat. And he does unclean things with Gentiles. And so they hated him. He must leave, lead this sect of the Nazarenes. They're trying to show that in their view, he is a heretic, he is an apostate, he has departed from the Jewish faith, he has left the Jewish God, he has left the Jewish Scriptures, he has abandoned everything that's Jewish. All of Judaism, all of the faith of their fathers, all that they held dear, all the prophets, the law, their God, all of that, Paul had turned his back on it. That's their argument. The second thing that they're trying to do is they're trying to show that Christianity is an illegal religion. And here's how they're doing that. Under Rome, there were certain legal religions like the worship of Diana and the worship of all the Greek gods and the worship of the one true God under in, in Jerusalem in the temple by the Jews. So Rome recognized that Judaism or the worship of the Jewish God according to the Jewish Scriptures in the Jewish temple was a legal religion. Now, anybody who was outside of that, anybody who didn't participate in that, who was doing their own thing, leading their own group, was fomenting and creating and promoting a false religion or an illicit, an illegal religion. And that's what they're arguing. They're trying to show that Paul is not part of historic Judaism. He's outside of that. And thus, he's illegal in the eyes of the Jews because he's apostatized from the Jewish God. And he is, it's illegal in the sight of Rome because he's promoting a false and illegal religion, one not recognized by Rome. So here's what Paul has to do. Paul has to show that he stands right in the center of Old Testament Jewish culture, tradition, worship, and belief. That's what he has to argue. That's what he's after. Now I ask you, if you, if you had to stand before somebody and prove that Christianity was the natural expression of Old Testament Judaism, how would you do? 
if you had to prove to a bunch of Jews that your Christian faith is the natural outflow, the natural result of being a good Jew, how would you do? Are you familiar enough with the Old Testament to be able to do that? That's what the Apostle Paul is faced with. And his life is on the line. Because listen, if they can prove that he's not Jewish, if he's out, if they can prove that he is outside of that, they've got him. He's a dead man. That's all they need to try him according to their own law and execute him. And that's all they need to get a guilty conviction from Rome. So how does Paul answer the charge of sectarianism? With all of that hanging in the balance? Look what he says in verse 16. He describes four things, and I want you to see them. Verse 14. Sorry, verse 14, chapter 24, verse 14. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers. The first thing he describes is his worship. Second thing he describes is his belief. Look at verse 14. Believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. The third thing he describes is in verse 15, his hope. Having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And the fourth thing he describes is in verse 16, in view of this, and this is his goal, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. He describes his worship, his belief, his hope, and his goal, all in an attempt to show that he is well within the mainstream of Jewish faith and tradition. So let's look at those four things. The first one, Paul describes his worship. Look what he says. But this I admit to you. Stop right there. Listen. What do you think was going through Tertullius' mind when he heard those words? I'll tell you what, Tertullus, that's the prosecuting attorney, and Ananias and the elders, I'll tell you what they were thinking. They were thinking to themselves, we're going to get a confession out of this guy. Because remember how they had ended their prosecution? Remember how they had ended the charge? They said, Felix, you ask him yourself about these things, and his own words will incriminate him, and you'll see that what we're saying is true. They're hoping for an admission. They're hoping for something that Paul is going to say that he's going to hang himself. So Paul says, but this I admit to you. And they're thinking, all right, he's going to make an admission. This is his confession. He's going to trip over his own words. It's now going to come out for all to see just how much he has departed from Old Testament Judaism. I worship God according, I worship the God of our fathers. I do serve according to the way which these men call a sect, the God of our fathers. So what he gives with one hand in admission, he quickly takes away with the other hand. And he sort of blunts, he confesses, I, I am a Christian. I do worship God according to this thing that they call a sect. It's called the way. They call it a sect. That is how I worship God. I am a Christian. I am a leader amongst Christians. I do promote this faith. But listen, Paul is arguing, this faith is the worship of the God that our whole nation has worshipped. There's nothing out of the ordinary with this. And he says they call it a sect. In other words, they've mislabeled it. It's really not a sect, is it? It's not a sect. That's his point. They call it a sect, but I worship the God of our fathers according to the way. Now, that's what the early Christians were called, the way. We don't use that term today. We don't say, well, I'm going to go worship with the way, or I'm part of the way. You never see a bumper sticker that says, I belong to the way, or I am with the way, or I worship with the way, or I worship the God of our fathers according to the way. But this is how Christians describe themselves, as the way. Acts chapter 9, the Apostle Paul sought letters from the high priest as he went to Damascus so that he might persecute anybody who belonged to the way. Acts 19 says that they began to speak slanderously and evil of the way, that is, of the Christian church. Remember Demetrius? It says in Acts 19, verse 23, that about this time there arose this great dissension concerning the way. Throughout the book of Acts, that's how Luke refers to the Christian church. Now you can imagine how that term got started, can't you? 
Didn't Jesus say, I am the way? And so Christians, when they said, I belong to the way, they were using a title of Jesus Christ that the early church recognized. He was the way. And He's the only way. And there's only one way. And He is it. He is known as the way. We worship the way. We belong to the way. That's another way of saying, I belong to Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth and the life. And because He is the way, and I belong to Jesus, I belong to the way. I'm of the way. But the the term, the phrase way also came to designate not just who you belong to, but how you lived. Friends, I live according to the way. In other words, there is a Christian way of living. There is a Christian lifestyle, a Christian behavior, a Christian worldview, a Christian theology, a Christian approach to life. So that everything about who I belong to and how I live is characterized by the way. So I belong to the way and I live according to the way. So not only does it describe who we belong to, it should describe how we live. Christianity is not just a social club. Christianity is, in fact, a way of life. And when people who belong to the way, they lived according to the way. That is to say that Jesus influenced their living and they belonged to Him and they lived according to Him. So they said, we are the way. Try that on your unsaved neighbor or friend next time you're sitting down across the coffee table and ask them, do you belong to the way? They'll think you belong to a cult when you say that. But that's the New Testament description for the early church and Christians. And they said it with pride. They used a term, the prosecution used that term, sect of the Nazarenes. Paul says, no, that's mislabeled. I belong to the way. And it is according to the way that is in Jesus Christ that I worship, serve the God of my fathers. The God of our fathers. Now the NASB says in verse 14, This I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, do I serve the God of our fathers. If you have the King James, the New King James, the NIV, it's translated worship. You can translate that word either way. Worship or serve because it's, they're interchangeable. It literally means an act of religious service that is rendered as worship. So that you worship in your service and you serve in your worship. You understand that? Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve or I worship with a clear conscience just the way my forefathers did. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, Since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show thanksgiving or gratitude by which we may offer to God acceptable worship or service with reverence and awe. Do you hear the overtones of worship in there, in service and in serving? Here's how you and I think of it. You often think, and I bet I'm getting into your mind when I say this, you think of your worship and your service as two separate things, don't you? You think of worship as what you do here for 30 minutes before the sermon. And as service, what you do 30 minutes after the sermon in cleaning up or setting up for a potluck or what you do on Friday nights or how you serve in Sunday school or in visitation or in lending a helping hand, you think that service is this and worship is that. It's not that way at all. The two are together, synonymous. Friends, we worship God in our acts of service and we serve God during our worship so that service itself becomes an act of worship. Do you begrudgingly serve? I'd rather be home with my family tonight. I'd rather be doing this right now than being here serving this or doing that or the other thing. That is your perspective while you are supposed to be giving God worship. Because service is worship. And what you do in serving God should be offered to Him in a spirit of reverence and awe as an act of worship. Friends, before I ever offer to you a sermon on Sunday mornings, I give it to God as an act of worship. It's an act of worship. 
You serving God in the area of your giftedness where God has called you to serve is an act of worship because it is service that is given out of a heart and a life of worship. So not only when I come here on Sunday mornings do I have to make sure for 30 minutes that my mind and my heart and my attitude are right, but anything I do for the Lord as an act of service to Him has to have the same critical examination given to it to make sure that my attitude, my motives, my desires, and my wants are all right. Otherwise, it's unacceptable worship. And if it's unacceptable worship, it's unacceptable service. And if it's unacceptable service, it's unacceptable worship. Because worship is service, and service is an act of worship. According to the sect, which these men call sect, according to the way, I worship the God of our fathers. Now, it wasn't just any God that Paul worshipped. That's his point. Do you notice that? I worship whom? He does not say, listen, I worship Jesus Christ, although he did. But that wouldn't have made Paul's case. What Paul says is, according to the way which these men call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. And what Paul is trying to do is he is trying to plant his feet right in the center of mainstream Judaism and say, I have not departed from the God that these men claim to worship themselves. In other words, it is the God of our fathers. I worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and the prophets, and all of the righteous men who have gone before. It is their God that I worship. And Paul's argument is, I haven't changed gods. I'm not outside of the pale of orthodoxy in the Jewish faith. It's the same God that Abraham worshipped. I worship the God of our fathers. In Exodus chapter 3, right before Moses delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, God came to him in the burning bush and Moses said, I'm going to go to the nation of Israel. I'm going to tell them the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they're going to say to me, what is his name? And then Moses said to the Lord, what am I going to say to them? And the Lord said, you shall say to the sons of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forevermore and this is my memorial name to all generations. In other words, for Paul to say, I worship the God of my fathers, was for him to place himself right in the same camp as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to say, I haven't changed God. And they might say, but you worship Jesus Christ. And Paul would have said, that's right. I worship the God of our fathers, incarnate in Jesus Christ. Right in the center of mainstream Jewish tradition. I haven't abandoned my God, Paul says. I worship the same God I always worshiped. I worship the same God my father worshipped. And it goes all the way back to Abraham, goes back before Abraham. I stand in a long line of men who have worshipped this same God. He describes his worship. I've worshipped the God of our fathers. And then look at what else he describes. He not only describes his, his worship, but Paul describes his belief. Verse 14, I serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and what is written in the prophets. I serve the God of our fathers, that's his worship that he describes, and I believe everything that is written in the law and in the prophets. That's his belief. Now here's the irony of this, and catch it. Paul says, I believe everything that is written in the law and in the prophets. Now, think back a couple Sundays and ask yourself, who was it that was accusing him? It was Ananias and the elders, right? And they brought Tertullus, the orator, the lawyer, along with them to present their case. But it's primarily Ananias and the elders. Now, in Jerusalem, in that council of the Sanhedrin, over which Ananias presided, there were two theological parties. Do you remember that? There were the Pharisees and there were the Sadducees. Ananias and the elders, they belonged to what party? Sadducees. 
the Sadducees had this real quirky belief about the Old Testament. Do you remember what it was? They only held as authoritative and only accepted five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The five books that were written by Moses. Paul says, I believe everything that's in Moses and everything that's in the prophets. What is he saying? I believe more than these men do. They're accusing me for being the leader of a sect. They're accusing me of rejecting Old Testament Scripture. They're accusing me of turning my back on Moses and the prophets. And I believe everything that's in Moses and the prophets. And could Ananias and could the elders, could those Sadducees affirm the same thing? We only accept five books. And the Sadducees, here's the irony of the whole thing. The Sadducees were this little tiny group amongst all of the Jews And they thought they were the protectors of orthodoxy. And they had that quirky belief about the Old Testament. They also didn't believe in spirits, didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in the afterlife, didn't believe in the resurrection, didn't believe in eternal heaven and eternal hell. They didn't believe in any of those things that all the other Jews. They were just this small little party, this little, um, what would you call it? A sect? (laughs) Amongst the Jews? That's what you would refer to the Sadducees as, a sect. And these men have the audacity to stand before Felix and say, He's the ringleader of a sect of the Nazarenes. And Paul says, I believe everything that's written in the law and in the prophets. In other words, I stand in the mainstream of Jewish belief about the Scriptures. These men are the ringleaders of a sect. If there was a sect to be pointed at, it was Ananias and the elders and the rest of the Sadducees who rejected all of that Old Testament and just believed those five books. And Felix knew this. Felix knew the Jews. He was married to a Jewess. He knew their doctrine. He knew their theology. He knew their approach to the Scriptures. He knew what party Paul was of. He knew the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And it wasn't lost on on Felix when Paul said, I believe everything that's written in the Law and the Prophets, Moses and the rest of the Old Testament. Paul was actually more orthodox than the people who were accusing him of being a heretic. I believe everything that's written in the Law and in the Prophets. Now over and over again in the book of Acts, you see that that Luke is endeavoring to show us that Christianity is not a deviation from Old Testament Judaism. Christianity is the fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism. It's not something beside the Law and the Prophets, in addition to the Law and the Prophets. It is something that everything in the Law and the Prophets looked forward to, predicted, foreshadowed, pointed to, anticipated. Everything was building up to the culmination of God incarnate in human flesh coming in a manger and bearing the sins of His people. That is what everything in the Law and the Prophets looked forward to. And Luke is trying to show us that the early Christians didn't abandon their Old Testament. You didn't have to stop believing in the prophets or stop believing what Moses wrote in order to believe and be a Christian. You didn't have to turn your back on the Old Testament and say, it's not good enough for us anymore. We want something new or we want something different. You didn't have to do that. The best Jew is one who embraces their Messiah. That's Paul's point. The best Jew is one who embraces their Messiah. And when a Jew became a Christian, they didn't view themselves as former Jews. They viewed themselves as fulfilled Jews. You know the difference between those two things? They didn't say, well, we once were Jewish. They said, no, we're still Jewish. We still worship the same God. We still have the same Scriptures. We still have all of the same basic beliefs, but we get them out of Moses and the prophets. The Old Testament is the only Scriptures that the early church had. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, what did he preach from? Peter didn't pull out something that Paul had written and say, okay, Paul says this about Jesus. He went back and he quoted Joel and he quoted David in Psalm 16 in Joel chapter 2. 
In Acts chapter 3, when Peter preached the sermon in the temple, what did he do? He went back and he quoted Moses from Genesis and Deuteronomy to show that Jesus was the Christ. In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen gave his defense before the council, it was all Old Testament law and prophets that he quoted from. He gave an exposition of all of that to the council. In Acts chapter 8, when Philip led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ, what did he use? Peter's writings, Paul's writings, the gospel? He used Isaiah the prophet. In Acts chapter 10, Peter said to Cornelius, of him, all of the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him can have forgiveness of sins. The prophets pointed to them. When Paul went into the synagogues in Acts chapter 13, all the way through his missionary journeys, what did he do? He reasoned from the scriptures. Acts chapter 17 says that Paul, according to his custom, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, pointing out the things in the law and the prophets that pointed to Christ. And then he would point to Christ and argue that this Jesus, whom I am preaching to you, is the fulfillment of all of the law and the prophets. I want you to look at two, two passages in the book of Acts. Just turn a couple chapters to Acts chapter 26. This is Paul's defense before Agrippa. Two years after Acts chapter 24, Paul's defense before Agrippa, verse 22, he says to Agrippa, King Agrippa, So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day, testifying both to small and great, stating that nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light to both the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Paul says to Agrippa, I have said nothing, I have taught nothing, I have advanced nothing except what Moses and the prophets said was going to take place. And that's what I preach has taken place. Look at Acts chapter 28, verse 23. When they had set a day, now this is Paul in Rome, when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from what? His own writings? No both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, began leaving after Paul had spoken. One parting word, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, and then he quotes Isaiah. So what did Paul argue from? What did they use to evangelize? What did they use to, to lead Jews to Jesus? The Old Testament. Jesus said to the Pharisees of his day, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life and they testify about me. In other words, everything in the Old Testament that you're reading, everything that you're practicing, everything that you're doing and believing points to me and they wouldn't accept him. Do you think that in the scriptures, by studying them, that you have life? And Jesus said, it's in me that you have life. They point to me. You want the scriptures without me and you can't have one or the other. You have to have both. Now, having said all of this, let me ask you two searching questions. First one is this. Do you neglect the law and the prophets? Do you neglect the law and the prophets? Does your Bible reading contain a high dose of the Old Testament? Friends, all Scripture is inspired by God, not just the New Testament. All Scripture. And if the author of two-thirds of the New Testament books or half the New Testament books, the Apostle Paul, if he felt that he could not turn his back on the law and the prophets, the author of the New Revelation, how is it that you and I can think that we can live without the law and the prophets? We can't. I'm not suggesting we go back and try and keep all of the Old Testament law. I'm saying that you and I ought to be familiar with what the prophets say about the Savior so that we could see on every page of the prophets how this points to what is coming and what Christ has already done. So that we could stand in an arena and say, I can show you that Christianity is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
and be so familiar with how the law is to be a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and how the prophets, everything they wrote and everything they said was pointing forward to that Messiah. So this coming year, in your Bible study, in your Bible reading, I challenge you to do this. Take one or two or three of the Old Testament books if you neglect the law and the prophets. Take one or two or three of the Old Testament books and read through them over and over and over again while you're reading through the New Testament as well. And become familiar with who wrote them and why they were written and what the main idea of that book is. And look in those books and in those passages for for things that point forward to Christ that predict Him. Go into the New Testament and find out where in the New Testament is this book quoted. And how is it quoted? And then when you're reading the New Testament and you run across something in Paul or Peter or James or John or one of the Gospels that points back to the Old Testament, that quotes the Old Testament, get that quotation down and go back to the Old Testament and find out what did it mean? What were they saying? So that you are familiar with both the Law and the Prophets as well as your New Testament. Do you neglect the Law and the Prophets? Second question is, I ask you, do you believe everything in this book? Notice what Paul says. I believe all that is written. Not some of what is written. Not most of what is written. Not all that is written that I agree with or like to obey. But all that is written in the Law and in the Prophets. If it was within Holy Writ... The Apostle Paul says, I can affirm it, I believe it, I love it, I read it, and I know it. Do you neglect the Law and the Prophets? And do you believe everything that's contained in this book? Friends, we live in a day and an age in which Christians approach Scripture like it is a buffet line. We go through and we take out what appeals to us, what appetizes us, what we enjoy eating, what we enjoy uh, feasting on, and we like all of the desserts. We like all of the great promises and the things that make us feel warm and fuzzy. And we leave the rest because we don't like it. It doesn't fit our idea of justice or fairness. It doesn't fit our perception of who we think God should be. And so we abandon it. Or because we don't obey it. We don't want to obey it. We live in a day and age in which people reject creation and the doctrines of creation for science falsely so-called. Because what we quote-unquote, think we see in nature doesn't comport with what the Bible says. So science must be true and the Bible must be false. So we leave that on the buffet table. Or I don't like what Scripture says about divorce and remarriage, so I won't obey that. Or I don't believe what God says about the view of man and what how corrupt man is. I believe what psychologists tell me about how good God, man is and how he just needs a, a little bit of help and he can make the right decision. He can do the right things. There's this little seed of spark of goodness in all of us. The doctrine of election, the doctrine of the atonement, you name it, friends. It's left on the buffet table because we don't want it. And I ask you, do you believe everything that is written in this book? Are you constantly reforming yourself so that this book trumps everything else? Everything else. And are you bringing your life, your doctrine, your service, your worship, your views, your worldview, your lifestyle, your behavior, your thinking, your prejudices, all of that in line with what Scripture says? Paul describes his worship. I worship the God of our fathers, placing himself right within mainstream Judaism. He describes his belief. I believe all that's written in the law and the prophets, placing himself right inside mainstream Judaism. And there are two two more things that he describes. We're going to have to stop here today, and we're going to pick it up with those next two things because they are weighty things, and I want you to see them. The next thing that he describes is his hope. Look at verse 15. Having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And then he describes his goal. In view of this, I do my best to maintain a good conscience or a blameless conscience before both God and before men. I want to take the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked next week 
And I want to look at that because that's loaded. You and I have to understand, what does it mean when Scripture talks about the righteous and the wicked being resurrected? What is that going to be like? When is that going to happen? How is it going to happen? Who's going to do it? Will we be there? What will we see? What answer that? And how is my hope in a future resurrection, how is that connected with me keeping a blameless conscience here before both God and before men? Because they go together. And so we'll plumb the depths of the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked and conscience next week. Let's pray. Father, we are very grateful for your word. And we pray, God, that you would give to us a grace and a love and a passion for the Old Testament, the grace to obey what is written there and to love what is written there and to see in that what you have revealed in the New Testament and what you have fulfilled in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us a love for all of your word, not just those parts that we want to obey. Give us a passion for obeying all of your word, loving all of your word, seeing all of your word, and treasuring all of it. We thank you for your word and how precious it is to us. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name for his sake and for his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.